The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good afternoon. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, You're listening to Museum Life. It's a wonderful day today, and I'm so glad that you've joined me. This is a really interesting and important show today. It's a topic that is really near and dear to my heart, and that is in a world, in a museum world where we are now having so many, working with so many consultants, you know, we sort of have in-house people meshing with out-house people. And while that is not new, we've been doing that probably, well, since uh, I've been in the field about 25 years, but there, there seems to be more of that mixture. And one of the challenges is making sure that all of the in-house people and all of the out-house people are actually working together as one team and not adversarial. And uh, we, as my guest today, is really good at doing that. And uh, so I'm hoping that she will share with us some of her tips and also her philosophy of project management and working with complex teams. Uh, Barbara Punt founded Punt Consulting in 2003. Uh, to provide quality project management to the nonprofit sector. She has an expertise in science centers and museums. She has a, a very long list of both projects that she's worked on as a consultant as well as being involved in the museum, uh, in museums, in uh, exhibit development and program development. I'm going to let Barbara tell the rest of her story. And so without further introduction, Barbara, welcome to the show today. Hello, and uh, thanks for the compliments. That's a nice introduction. Well, my pleasure. Barbara, uh, as, I, as I promised, and I do this with every audience because I know that there are many, many museum studies uh, students uh, who are watching this show, and I think it's always very instructive uh, to, to learn how people uh, have entered their career, and more importantly, what were those key experiences that really influenced your thinking about your work now? Uh, well, since you mentioned having students, the first thing I'd say is that no education is ever wasted. I spent you know, time getting a bachelor's in history and then did kind of a turnaround and got a degree in design, 
and along the way I thought, well, I don't know, maybe I'll head up into law or psychology or architecture. And in the end, I use all of them now, especially psychology. So I would start by saying you should study what interests you, and it kind of unfolds when you go from there. My first job, I was really lucky, and I got an internship at the Brooklyn Children's Museum at a time when they were undergoing a lot of change. And the change agent was Kathy McLean, who's just a fascinating person and fearless. And so as I was thinking about each of my jobs, it occurred to me that I think what I learned there was to be versatile and really just go for it. Um, Also, to pitch in with anything. We had times when we were all painting exhibits before going out, including the executive director of the museum. And I think that was a terrific start in the career. It also allowed me to do some writing. Kathy liked my uh, tongue-in-cheek meeting minutes and gave me a project to write up a study that had been done by Beverly Sorrell with the museum. So it was wonderful. Right out of the gate, I had a book published by AAM called Doing It Right. Um, From there, I went to the Franklin Institute and had another good mentor in Bill Booth. At that point, we were working on the Futures Center, so it was a whole new wing being under construction as well as designers doing exhibits. That was an in-house design job, which kind of set the stage for my understanding of that part of it. And it also was interesting in that we developed a real peer group, what Elaine Gurian might call cohorts. Those of us working on the Future Center were kind of this group in another part of the building, and we really learned to support each other. And to this day, we'll call one another if we have a question about something or heard something that, you know, we figured someone can help us steer towards the right source of information. So the Franklin Institute was this great grounding in in peer group, and it was my first experience commercially with construction. I was doing the Future Computers exhibit, and it had a late start, so I was both co-exhibit developer and exhibit designer. And when it was being built, I'd, I'd go up and I'd check it out every day when the workers were on lunch. And I just found that I adored watching things being built. And in the rest of my career, it turns out I'm on construction sites quite a bit. Something else I learned at the Franklin Institute was you never know who's got the most information, and that paying attention to people's job titles is somewhat irrelevant in that on the construction site, the person with the most power and control and direction is not the white-collar workers that you, you know, pay attention to meetings at the higher levels, but the folks in the field, the supervisor. And I think that was a good initiation for me on how you get things done. You work with people with what they bring to the table and not the title someone has given them. It's funny, I would stand there with my clipboard and people would say, gee, are you in charge of all of this? And I just laughed. It was maybe $10 million in total. And I thought, oh my God, no, I could never do that. <laughs> you know, and, and ultimately I ended up being in charge. The last staff job was a $130 million addition at the California Science Center. So, you know, again, you never know where you're going to go. Those you have you have had some of the best mentors in our field, uh, and I you make some excellent points 
uh, particularly talking about what it's like being on the uh, the construction floor. And I think that that is also something that so many of us never have the opportunity to do or we do it once. And and then it's, one, it's a surprise. It's a really sharp learning curve uh, if you're doing it for the first time. And then you, you know, often that, that uh, those teachings and, and those lessons are, aren't transferred to anyone. So it seems to me that so much of what you've been doing, it, uh, particularly in your consulting work, is, is teaching those lessons to people so that they don't always have to learn the hard way. Yes, and I found I just had a very, uh, an aptitude for it. And I went from the Franklin to Liberty Science Center, which was a startup, and then the California Science Center, which is a big construction addition. And the more often you do it, the less worried you get. You know, you, you figure you can, you have problem-solving abilities, and if you don't, someone else will. So you gain a confidence in dealing with the unexpected. As a consultant, that makes perfect sense because uh, frequently my clients are the executive director or department heads, and they might come to me in some confidence and say, look, I have this project, I'm concerned, I've never done this before. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little afraid. And my answer to them is, if you weren't afraid, you'd be crazy. You've never done this before. So it helps to be comfortable in your own skin. And I think that's the, the biggest part of what I bring to any project is some experience and some authenticity and being frank about emotional responses as well as professional expertise. Well, I want to follow up uh about how clients find you. I, I always think that that's a fascinating uh, bit of our business. But before I do that, uh, you know, getting a little bit more of the basics out of the way, uh, your company uh, specializes in project management. I know you do a, you know, a, a, the company does a breadth of things. But just to sort of start out, uh, what, and make sure that we're all uh, speaking the same language, what is project management? Well, it's the art and science of getting people to want to do what you need them to do. <laughs> you know, that's basically it. It's, it's using a lot of different skills. I once wrote a job description for a client who wanted to hire someone locally, and I wrote that the proven abilities should include the tact of a diplomat, an accountant's attention to detail, the persuasiveness of a cheerleader, and Gumby's flexibility in juggling and prioritizing many tasks. And that's really it. Unfortunately, the HR manager didn't want to put that out. <laughs> that really is project management. Yeah, that would be a little little tough to score, but I understand what, what you're saying completely, having been on some of these these jobs uh, as as well. I think in some ways it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I know you, you knew Janet Kamian and... and uh, uh, Polly McKenna Cress, uh, co and they co-wrote a book uh, not not so long ago about you know creating exhibits, uh, and they were using that uh, you know, a very similar kind of of skill set that's necessary 
they were using that to describe, say, the interpretive planner or the exhibit developer, and here we're now talking about it as, as project manager, is does everybody then sort of become that, the, the person who tries to put things together, or is there, in, in your experience, is there a hierarchy? A lot depends upon people's personalities and the chemistry of the team. Uh, the, the role of the project manager is usually one that's assigned, and so you are given the task to keep this team moving forward. And in that sense, there's a hierarchy in that people need to hear what you have to say and for the most part need to meet their marks, need to meet their budget or scope or schedule you know, what they have to do, what they've signed on to do. So in that sense, there's a hierarchy. But as I mentioned with regards to construction, people's job titles are really irrelevant if, if you look at the competencies there. If, if I'm not good at my job, nobody's going to listen to me. I mean, you can legislate somebody supposed to follow what you do, but you can't legislate respect. So on paper... Yes, the project manager keeps everything moving forward, but in reality, if they're not strong and if they're not good, people will run over them because people genuinely want to get the project done right. I, I don't think the project manager is the sole person with that goal. Well, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that that one... Uh, that sort of uh, ephemeral sense of trust within a team is uh, usually, in my experience, the thing that, uh, well, certainly uh, uh, separates projects that you do and projects that you loved to do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> And, um, you know, I'm wondering if you could just uh, talk a little bit uh, more about that, the subjective side of it, because I think sometimes uh, institutions on the inside, perhaps before they've reached you uh, and and gained from your experience, are thinking that, uh, you know, they may do things in a, in a certain way, you know, every institution has a certain culture, but when the, you know, expert consultants come in, they just sort of act like little robots and get the job done, no matter what the circumstances. And it sounds to me that, you know, it's it, that r- really there is much more subjective uh, stuff going on there. Well, I think the primary, the, the point of initiation for me, and one would hope for most people on these jobs, is respect. And it's not only respect for one another, but these projects employ a lot of resources. There's money, there's time, there's human capital. And I feel a great sense of responsibility towards the people who thought this up, were able to raise money for it, were able to marshal all the resources. So I feel the weight of that fiduciary responsibility, and I want to take it seriously. This is not my goal to to watch come to fruition. I'm, I'm the midwife. I'm charged with bringing other people's goals safely to the world, and I think that that's the starting point for everything I do. And in a in an abstract way, I, I look at it as much as the profession is kind of a helping profession. You know, it's a calling. I'm here to help you do something. I was chatting with some friends recently and said, 
they said, well, what would you do if you weren't doing that? And it crossed my mind that working for something like Kickstarter was analogous, that to help people's goals come to fruition. So this is just one method by which I do that. And in order to do that, you have to be able to understand the unspoken agenda as much as the spoken one. In order to get people to work together, you have to really read them. So I'm operating on two levels. I've got all the objective data in front of me. I write contracts. I keep track of schedules and budgets. But I'm also reading all of the members of the team, and that's what I do to keep it moving forward. What's their body language in meetings? Has their tone changed on the phone? What would appear to be their cooperation level with others? I think those are the tools in my toolkit, and those are perhaps a broader set of tools than most project managers will admit to. I think there's a great emphasis on the left-brain objective thinking in Western culture, and that if you're really able to observe things on a parallel track and also do intuitive types of analysis, it's beneficial, and it's not always discussed. Well, and congratulations for it. Uh, to you for uh, articulating that. Uh, I can see uh, that you, too, are, are fearless. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I hope that's a good thing. But. No, it, no, well, it, it, it is. Uh, I, um, as, as you and I had, had, uh, have, have talked before, it, there is still so much misunderstanding, I think, of what project managers do, what, what these big projects entail. I mean, I'm assuming certainly on, on the uh, California Academy project and, and Liberty Science Center, you mentioned uh, those, that there were literally, you know, tens to twenties to fifty different kinds of trades and designers and experts uh, who were working on those projects. And that's an awful lot of plates to keep spinning. Yeah, I had kind of a sense of being the MC. The, um, the California Science Center project, at one point we had two-day meetings every other week with the whole team of our uh, um, consultants. And it was the Noah's Ark theory we used to joke. There were two architects in the room. There were designers both for what we call the live exhibits, so the, the arboretum and the terrestrial and aquatic animals, and the designers for the quote-unquote dead exhibits, which are the interactives. And it was a project team of about 15 people. And I would start these meetings in my office kind of thinking, okay, showtime, because it took a lot of energy to keep focused and to keep them focused. It also took a lot of awareness because a meeting of 15 people, at, you know, two entire days, there's lots of chit-chat outside of the main agenda. And it's the project manager, the leader of the meeting, the facilitator's job, to know when that chit-chat needs to be brought to the fore because it's an important point that, you know, may have been glossed over or omitted entirely. And when that chit-chat is just because people are bored <laughs> and how to modulate the meeting in a very productive way, that's a lot of resources. When you think of the dollar figure per hour of that many people, you know, there's a big responsibility to use it wisely. Yes, ab- absolutely. Well, I think this is, I have so many more questions uh, to ask you, particularly in uh, trends that you've seen over time, and we're going to get into that. But first, we are going to take a, a brief break, and when we come back, more with Barbara Punt and talking about project management and in-house and out-house uh, uh 
groups and, and how to manage them effectively and uh, humanely. Uh, we will be back in a moment. You're listening to Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. You're listening to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with Barbara Punt. Uh, Barbara is the owner and chief executive of Punt Consulting. Uh, I, I, uh, Barbara... I won't do it justice, but would you please uh, uh, repeat your tagline? I just love that. <laughs> well, when in doubt, punt. If you need help, you know, that's what you do. You give me a call. Excellent, excellent. And you can find Barbara uh, both on LinkedIn and on her website, and I will make sure before the end of this segment to uh, give you that uh, that information. Of course, you can also always find uh, that contact information on uh, the guest bios on the Museum Life webpage itself. But Barbara, you know, you and I have been in this business for, you know, quite a while, um, 20 20 odd years. Uh, and so I'm wondering what, what trends have you noticed perhaps over the past 10 years or so in terms of the way projects are being developed and are being managed? I think to start with is when I started out uh, 25 or so years ago, I never encountered a dedicated project manager. Um, it may be that they were prevalent in the field in other parts of the country or something, but I think that's the initial trend is that there didn't used to be that. There was not an appreciation that it was a separate skill set or that it required sufficient time and energy that it would be a person's full-time job. So that's where I would start. I 
I'm pleased to see that because I think that both of those are true. In my experience, it would be often the curator or the designer or sometimes the exhibit developer who would take on those tasks. And depending upon the individual person, they may be good at it or not very good at it. So I think that the first thing is the idea of having a dedicated project manager is much more prevalent now than it was in that time frame. It's interesting, too, that now that there are project managers, there's kind of a tendency to not want to increase staff. Staff have benefits. You have to deal with HR issues. Do you keep them? Do you lay them off in times when you're not so busy? And so I think having project managers as consultants is probably more prevalent now than when I started out in-house as a project manager. I have kind of the in-house and quote-unquote out-of-house experience having been on staff for 16 years prior to starting Punk Consulting. And I think that it's appealing to people now to be able to hire someone on an as-needed basis for as much time as they need. There's some projects where I'm on soup to nuts from source selection and getting designers and so on through opening. And in other projects where they'll hire me to write the RFP to help them sort through proposals and interview people. And I think it's very helpful to the clients in that they don't have to worry about my salary or even my fees for the long haul if that's not a part of the work that they need. So that kind of leads into the second part of your comment about RFPs. It's, I think, another trend. There used to be perhaps a greater reliance on in-house design, and now there seems to be a desire to go out to someone who's part of a group, usually a firm, and that requires some way to determine which firms. How do you ascertain who's a good fit? There's a lot of mistaken vocabulary. People interchange RFQ, RFP, you know, estimates, and, and sometimes they really mean one but say the other. Oftentimes you'll start with an RFQ, a request for qualifications, where you'll either post or you'll solicit information from firms which you think are qualified. And if there's a need because of the funding source or a desire to have a very broad net, you would start with the RFQ. And you might get 100 responses. I had 132 responses to one I did. And that's where you figure out which firms are best suited to get the next step, which is when you send out a request for proposal. In this case, you're not asking for information solely from them. You're now providing a framework. This is my project. This is the subject matter, the size, square foot. I strongly encourage clients to include the size of the budget. And by giving a description of what this is, you're inviting these qualified firms to submit proposals. And it's very tricky how you structure your RFP. When I set them up, I ask not only the subjective questions, you know, how might you work, and and the firm and the museum can see if there's a chemistry type of fit, but I ask a lot of data-oriented questions so that I can do an analysis. How many hours do you think this fee will buy us? What, What is your overall fee if the project has got a thousand dollar budget just for a round number. How much of that is your fees? How much of that is for fabrication? And then you drill down deeper and deeper and you see the value you're getting. That's really different from simply saying, I need somebody to evaluate this exhibit. What will it cost? Or I need somebody to fabricate 
these items that have already been designed. To use an RFP for that, I think, is overkill and requires too much work on the part of the consultant or the fabricator. It's, it's useless. You're really asking for a price estimate. And to do much more than that can be an awful lot of wasted effort. That's very interesting and I think gets to uh, the crux of a, of a discussion that you and I have had. Uh, in fact, we're going to uh, follow up on this discussion at uh, AAM uh, it, with a small group of uh, designers and, and other consultants. Uh, certainly, I have seen in my practice uh, that uh, there are more and more RFQs, RFPs being issued uh, for projects as opposed to just having conversations with people. Have you noticed that as well? I have, and I'm not entirely sure it's the right direction. I mean, that might be shooting myself in the foot. That's a good part of what I do. But I think that there is the sense of dating, so to speak, and whenever possible when people hire me, I'll try and do a small self-contained project. Maybe I'll do a workshop to help them assess the duration and the scheduling and the sequency, or I'll help them look at the budget or something. And when I've talked to Museums, they like that approach, and if they had the wherewithal to do that with a designer, to handpick a few people, a few firms, have conversations with them, maybe hire somebody to do a smaller bit of work, and and essentially date the firm to see if it's a good working relationship. But unfortunately, funding sources do not always permit that. They often require some kind of a selection process that you can document, And so those kinds of more informal conversations are much fewer and far between than they used to be. That's uh, that is a, a uh, an important point that sometimes uh, organizations are are driven by their their funding sources uh, and obviously uh, an external funding source whether it's private or or government wants to make sure that their money is is being uh, spent wisely. But uh, I'm wondering how many of your clients or you know potential clients uh, when you first talk to them just have this assumption whether it comes from the board or something that they've heard that that doing an RFP RFQ process makes them is oh I don't know somehow the state of the art or the only approach in uh, in bringing in people to do tasks that need doing I think there's a misperception that if they don't do that, and often they want to do it with blind, not revealing budgets, they think, well, we'll leave money on the table. If we approach design firm X, say we have this budget, they're going to use it all up. And if we did an RFP, people might underbid them, and that could be good. And I don't think you can equate cost with value. I think they're entirely different things. So... I just think that the ability to have a meaningful conversation and to see if there's a, an agreement and alignment in philosophy and working styles is far more important than the misperception that if we don't force them into an adversarial relationship, they won't give us a competitive number. Ah, now we're really striking at something that uh, is, I, I think, even you know, sort of deeper. Uh, uh, 
a deeper level than, than say, excuse me, an outside funding source. And that is there seems to be a trend toward greater mistrust. Yeah, there's the expression, the high-priced consultants. And I think that's laughable. Particularly, well, I, I was a high-priced consultant. Yeah, really. I mean, if you add in benefits and, you know, money towards retirement and paid vacation, whatever, I have seldom done as well as a consultant as I did on staff. But that's not the driving force for why I was turned to being a consultant or am a consultant. But the, the misperception that they're out to milk us of what, what they can is ludicrous. For one thing, they is not really appropriate because the vast majority of consultants, is usually they're coming from the museum field in-house in some capacity. Maybe majority is not a correct assessment, but a lot of people are like me, where they started out in-house in a design, or rather in a, a staff job, and then became a consultant. And there, it's a very fluid experience. Many people go back to being on staff. And so to, just to simply personify they and to vilify them is foolish. Yes, uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, I think that is, uh, answering my own question, one of the trends that uh, I've seen you know, more uh, because museums are cutting their staff, people then either have to, whether they freelance for a while between uh, in-house jobs or whether they do uh, choose the consulting life uh, for a variety of reasons. And yes, let me assure everyone who's listening, it is usually not for the money uh, <laughs> that we do what we do. Uh, but it seems to me that there is this fluidity. Uh, certainly there was not that fluidity, uh, say, 25 years ago. If you left, quote, the museum profession and you, you became a consultant, you were no longer in the running for in-house jobs. And I don't think that that's true anymore. I think to the benefit of uh, the field and to everyone involved, because sometimes the right project just hasn't come along. Uh, there, there are uh, and a question I wanted to ask you, as a con- you know, since you've been in in-house and out-of-house, uh, have you do you find that there is a difference in your ability to influence and impact the project, uh, being on one side of the table or the other? Yes, absolutely. People tend to listen to what I have to say as a consultant even though it may not be any different from what I said as a staff person. And I will frequently start projects where a staff person may take me aside, tell me their concerns, and say, I wish you'd bring this up. They'll pay attention when you say it. And unfortunately for them, it's often the case. Bringing in a consultant adds a certain weight, because obviously if they don't like you, they can just get rid of you. So they better think that there's an added value. Otherwise, what's the point in hiring them? You know, if you have the right people in-house and they're saying the right things, you could listen to that as well. And it's sad to say that that's not always the case. I would suspect that at times you run into some resentment on the part of the staff. They do, and that's why, especially at the beginning of a project, I try and find some common ground with everybody. I mean, the variety of tasks which I've had through the course of my staff jobs 
has given me experience in developing things, designing things, running operations. So there's usually some common ground in which I can connect with staff at almost any level in every department. And I like to speak with them individually and find out what their concerns are. Or when I start fresh with a client with a bigger group meeting, I run a workshop where the first activity is called Hopes and Fears. You know, what, do you, what are you afraid of on this job? What do you hope for? And after a few people chime in, people are, are more relaxed about expressing that. And occasionally that comes up. You know, that I, my voice will not be heard because the consultants will be heard and valued more deeply than mine. Mm. And I think it's really important for department heads, for CEOs, sometimes board members attend those meetings. It's important to hear that message. They have to value and respect their staff and not simply think the quote-unquote high-priced consultant must be worth it. Very, very good point. Barbara, before we break, would you please uh, let everyone know how they can reach you, uh, what your website is? They can take a look at uh, www.puntconsulting.com, and that's punt, like football, P-U-N-T. Fabulous. And, I've, and I, uh, there are some also very good resources on your website uh, that, that people can, uh, can, can read as well that you've sort of given away for free to help people understand what this job is, is all about and how they can make, their, make sure that their projects are successful. We are going to take another short break, and when we come back, Barbara and I are going to continue to talk about how, uh, how we can all work together in our field to have great projects and have a great time doing them. Uh, remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossard at verizon.net. I love to hear from my listeners and also uh, those of you who are, are new to, uh, to listening to Museum Life. Let me know what you think. Let me know what topics we should be talking about. This is your show. Uh, so we will be back in a minute. This is Carol Bossard for Museum Life. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm here today with Barbara Punt. And uh, Barbara has her own consulting firm, uh, Punk Consultants, that is a good place to go for project management uh, in the beginning, middle, and end of a end of a project. And before break, uh, we were in the last segment. We were talking a little bit about uh, what RFPs are, requests for proposals, or RFQs, requests for qualifications. And Barbara, we were talking about. Uh, there are some good times and perhaps some not so good instances uh, to, when it's good to uh, uh, issue an RFQ, RFP, and 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 how how do you make that distinction? I think that when you're pursuing someone and you want to have a creative relationship to develop an exhibit idea, to design it, that that may be less fruitful to use an RFP because the chemistry and the experience is very important. When it's someone who's in an implementation role, please build this. You know, please market that. If it's much more, I have figured something out and I want you to do it, then it's really more of a price. I don't think that the conversation is as necessary as it would be if you're trying to decide if someone can help you develop something and flesh out the kernel of what you may think is the right direction. Interesting. And, of course, the irony is that most design design firms now are uh, brought onto projects almost, uh, I would say, what, 75%, maybe more, through an RFP process. The interesting thing is writing an RFP requires an initial conversation with the client, right, the museum. And I was chatting with the designer the other day about timing. You know, I'm doing a schedule. This is the size of the exhibit. This is the budget. About how much time do you think that would take? So this is an exhibit designer. And their response was really obvious but still startled me. She said it depends upon what they need. Are they coming to the table with an idea? Have they done research? Do they have researchers on staff? So while what you say is true that many designers come via an RFP, I don't think that the RFPs are particularly clear about the services they require or what they themselves are providing. And so to go out and ask a designer is um, very challenging if you're not clear from the beginning about what is it you need besides somebody to draw them up in a way that they can be built. That's... uh... That, of course, strikes uh, strikes a chord with me whenever uh, someone comes to me and they said, well, you know, how, how do we develop the exhibit or how do we uh, create a team? And my answer always is, well, it depends. Yeah. And, of course, they look at you as if, well, and you call yourself a consultant. <laughs> I go, well, yeah, uh, I do. Okay. And, and, I, and I guess that's what you're, that it seems to me that's what you're saying as well. So often... Uh, I've seen projects where they rush to bring in the designer before they even really know what the project is. And so that can really sort of waste uh, a lot of time and become more frustrating. You know, I started out talking about the resources that 
go into projects. And I think that human capital, not only the cost of people, whether they're staff or consultants, but goodwill. And so if you're wasting time in the beginning or if there's a sense of frustration between the parties, you're not investing your capital in a very productive relationship. You know, you're starting to kind of call in your chips, as it were, which means that your bank account is going to be empty later on when you need more chips. So I think that you're right. If it starts out on the wrong foot, it's frustrating for everyone and is unfortunate and to some degree avoidable. There needs to be more clarity up front. That requires some self-examination. I'll have clients who think that they know their concepts are set or they're fully staffed to do research, but they're not always open to the conversation of, is that true? Do you want to hear from somebody else? You know, is there room for you to allow a period of flexibility? And that can create confusion. The designer may anticipate the museum is in one state of readiness, whether it's more or less, and the museum may be completely different. They may be on different pages totally. And to get those two sides to agree before anybody can assess the project, you know, decide the cost or the duration, and then who's going to do it, it's an unfortunate starting point. Yeah, I, I, yes, I have been on some of those projects, and it can lead. Uh, everyone feels frustrated, uh, and I think that's what you and I were were uh, where we started this conversation, and uh, and will continue it is to bring back the uh, the humanity into these these jobs. I mean, projects uh, in the museum world are developed by people for people, and sometimes we miss the people part. Yeah, both in the development and then in how they're portrayed. I think that the people part is important, and it's beneficial to both sides. When I'm in the middle of a museum as a client and the, you know, the consultant who does whatever, it's important to my client that I hear their concerns, but that I also hear the consultant's concerns. And my ability to be its translator or bridge isn't just caving into the consultants or being too nice to the enemy, like sleeping with the enemy. I've had people say that to me. It's to the client's benefit if we understand the other side of things, the point of view. And as you were saying, humanity, who wants to work in an adversarial relationship? Who in their right mind would set that up as a goal? So it's in our best interest to try and avoid that and set the stage initially for a positive relationship. Well, I sort of got stalled at the sleeping with the enemy part, but I understand exactly <laughs> what you're saying. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, what's the best piece of advice, of advice that you've ever been given? <laughs> Carry a pad and pencil. Seriously. And it was odd, but it was true. Kathy McLean told me that once. She said, never leave your desk without a pad and pencil. And over the years, I found that's true, particularly because a lot of work gets conducted on the fly. You know, you're on your way to the coffee pot or the Xerox machine. I had a boss at one point when I was on staff whose office was directly across from the ladies' room. And I swear, every time I went to go to the ladies' room, she'd have something. She'd call my name. I'd go in her office. And so you look like an, you feel like an idiot. You go to the ladies' room with a pad in your hand. 
But, you know, it turned out to be really helpful advice. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> that is a, that is a, a great piece of uh, piece of advice. I I actually I had a similar piece of advice uh, when I was a graduate student. Uh, uh, a faculty member said, "Always come to a meeting with a pen." Well, yes. you know, she forgot the piece of paper. I think it was in those days. You, you know, you were given pieces of paper with an agenda or a, or, a, or a bibliography, and so I've I have learned to you know use about any scrap that I can find, which <laughs> isn't really good for organization. It just shows that you are a true project manager. <laughs> well, I've got a low tech start. I walk around with steno pads because they have spirals at the top, where you can stick your pen, and they typically have a um, let's see, not a vertical line down the center of the page, so you can write things on the left and right, and, you know, you can do a to-do list or by person or by task or whatever. So, I mean, I started out before the era of computers and cell phones and so on, and there's still a place for that. Yes, yes, and I think it's coming back. You know, the the retro use of of, of uh, paper and pens. Um, Barbara, another question that I wanted to ask you is: so, how do your clients find you? I mean, you know, the internet's a really big place, uh, and you're just one little website. So, uh, how how do they know to find you? And uh, you know, how how do you get your uh, uh, your client base? Primarily referrals. You know, easily 90% of my work is referrals. I've only responded to an RFP perhaps two or three times in the last 12 years. More frequently, I'll get someone, a consultant sometimes, saying to me, wow, you know, I just talked to so-and-so, or we've been pursuing this job, or oh, my God, do they need you? I I sent them your way. And that's an interesting premise, because then I sometimes end up with people who are troubled, knocking on my door saying, (laughs) wow, I'm told I need you. Um, but having been in the field a long time, having worked on a number, you know, string of projects without interruption, and having a fairly memorable last name with a helpful tagline, it just works. I do also advertise on in various combinations, sometimes all three, the websites for AAM, for Aztec, the Association of Science Technology Centers, or ACM, the Association of Children's Museums. So if you are a member of those organizations, you can put up a page or they'll have a link to your website. So, you know, you list yourself under whatever discipline they, they whatever name they assign most closely to your discipline. But honestly, I get it from people. I, I virtually never get somebody cold calling me. Well, yes, I, I do. I do agree with you. I think the cold call is dead. And uh, but more importantly, as you were saying before, uh, the relationship that you have that a that an institution uh, needs to have with their clients is a bit of alchemy, and uh, they have to have that chemistry with you. I'm sure even uh, more than any of their other trusted uh, consultants. Yes, and. Once or twice, that referral bounces back in a negative way. I've had donors or family foundations say to a client, we will give you the implementation funds, but you need a professional project manager. You know, here are one or two names. And occasionally, that does not work in my benefit because the client feels resentful that they could have done this in-house, that, you know, why are they stuck with this person? So that's a challenge. But generally speaking, the referral means I get a chance to chat with somebody 
as we were saying before, which I think is the best way to start a project. So that's I find it helpful, and thankfully, because I've only seldom responded to RFPs, I'm aware of their importance, but I'm also happy when I do get to respond every once in a while because it reminds me of the other side. What's the benefit of my writing a bad RFP? So when I have to respond to them, I learn again what are the more helpful questions or you know, setting up logistics or what have you. If I write a bad one, it's not helping anybody. So that kind of feedback is important. And sometimes it's very hard for me to get from other consultants who might respond to my RFPs. I frequently ask for it, but I think they're afraid of offending me because I write a lot of them. And I, I try to tell them, you're not offending me if you tell me I did something wrong. It's to nobody's benefit if I keep repeating mistakes. So maybe out there listening, you know, send me an email if you say, you know, I really wish you would ask this, or it's useless when you ask that. Let me know. Well, and I, I uh, again, thank you very much for stating those things. And again, it shows your your courage and fearlessness be, uh, to to sort of bring light uh, to this this issue. I mean, I, I I don't know about your experiences, but mine is if there's uh, in a in a group of of museum professionals, uh, particularly consultants, designers, architects, uh, lighting designers, uh, even fabricators, uh, if there's a lull in conversation and you really want to get something started, all you have to do is say, "So, what do you think of the RFP process?" And you know, th- things go in a, a a pretty dramatic way. Well, and that's a conversation that I think should be had on a wider basis. That. It's not helpful if it's restricted to the consultants among themselves, although, of course, I'm part of that conversation too, right? But I think that clients need to understand the impact of their requirements. And clients are less and less interested in hearing that. And for understandable reasons, they're getting pressure from the board, from donors, from you know, municipal sources of funding. So they need to focus on getting that RFP done in a way that pleases all of those constituents. Uh, very, very, very well well said. Uh, have you noticed that there has been a, uh, an increase in, in projects or the size of projects that you're working on these days? I mean, obviously, you've worked on some real big ones recently. Um, I'm not sure I see that there's a, an increase in bigger versus smaller or vice versa. What I'm noticing in the wider field, and I'm contemplating how I participate in that, is that there's perhaps a bigger emphasis now on programs and community engagement because the idea of committing funds to something tangible and set in concrete, so to speak, is more of a concern because it's not malleable. And I think this is a positive trend, the idea that People can, people meaning anybody, can weigh in on what's important in an exhibit or program. That it's not simply we on high are saying this is what you should learn. This is what we have to impart to you. So I think the trend is more inclusivity with communities, with potential stakeholders, with people who are going to enjoy the exhibits or programs. And that will often take the place of software programming, the rise of maker spaces, and other kinds of dedicated portions in a building or events, which allow people 
a deeper and richer engagement is something I would never have seen 10 years ago, even five years ago. I think there's been a huge change in that, and I think it's fascinating. I, I, yes, I, I, I do, too. I'm sorry to cut you a little short, Barbara, uh, but we are at the end of a program. We could spend another hour talking, but we're not going to. Uh, uh, remember, you can uh, reach Barbara uh, at uh, puntconsulting.com. Is that it? That's right, or you can email me directly, barbara at punkconsulting.com. Fabulous, fabulous. Barbara, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, I think we've raised a lot of very interesting points, and hopefully this will generate further conversation. Uh, This has been a wonderful episode of Museum Life, and I will be back next week with another program. Uh, Thanks for listening. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.